Food and Beverage Magazine Live, bringing food and beverage to life with your hosts, James Beard Award winner Jennifer English and Food and Beverage Magazine publisher Michael Politz. Featuring leaders in the hospitality, branded food and beverage, and CPG industries, many of whom are Jennifer and Michael's friends in the business. For an informal and informative conversation where friends in the business share the latest intel, ideas, and best practices. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farms, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Here are your hosts, Jennifer English and Michael Politz. We are live. Food and beverage brought to life. Live, juicy inside scoop from the tastemakers, newsmakers, bread bakers, drink shakers, spoon lickers, clam diggers, farmers, foodies, and friends of the food and beverage magazine world. Now, I am your host, Michael Politz, publisher of Food and Beverage Magazine, along with my co-padre. I like to say co-padre because she's kind of my co-padre, Jennifer English. Hi, Jen. Boop. What are you, what? We got Jennifer eating. This Boop. is amazing. Wait a this second. Is, okay. This is amazing. How long did you think Watch. that was? What? Listen, every day this week, we've been talking about guys and restaurants and women that make the most incredible chicken sandwiches. Tell me you haven't been craving a chicken sandwich. I am satisfying my... You caught me. Is that Chick-fil-A? No. It's a little Show independent it. company here. Show it again. Show it again. Show it again. Show it again. It's delicious. Open mm. it up. Open it up. Let's see it. Let's see it. Is it delicious? Mm. Mm. How much was it? How much was it? It's from Lodge on the Desert. Mm. Where mm. Chef Miguel Heredia is one of just, they do this at Lodge on the Desert. And um, is, it worthy? It? is it worthy? Oh, look at the eyeballs rolling I, I think it is. I, I think it is. Wow. I watch, but they didn't used to do this. And and it's 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 intended to showcase two things that we're going to talk about today. The first is there are things that are going on that we're now slowing down enough to pay attention to that let us reimagine and reconfigure for the moment that we're in. And if literally the the hottest thing in town is a hot chicken sandwich. And that's what people want. Then you make a hot chicken sandwich in the style or the house style, your signature style of your flavor philosophy. And that's where your artistic, stylistic impression of how you interpret a chicken sandwich, a taco, a burrito, a steak dinner. That's where signature style becomes so important. And so yes. if making it, you got to give them a lot of props for doing that sort of commodity food in their own signature style. That's why when all the musicians and singers in the world do the Cole Porter songbook, we know the songs, but how different people do that. Well, we like one person's style. Maybe I like how Rod Stewart does it better than I like somebody else. Maybe I, I like how Diana Krall does it. Yeah, or, they call that the America songbook. The Great American Songbook. So in terms of food and flavor, hospitality and the hospitality industry and the Check restaurant industry, I want mm -hmm. you to keep that in mind. How does your musicianship and artisanship play the classic American restaurant songbook, both in the front of the house and That's the brilliant. back of the house? In terms I'll of tell you, in my book, in my yeah. book, 
Food and Beverage Guide, Magazine's yeah. Guide to Restaurant Success, available July 1st at Barnes & Noble and on Amazon and Books a Million. Um, we discuss that. We discuss have that little – you can have a standard, an American classic, right? Like I did with my uh, with my hamburger places. We had a chicken sandwich, just like you're eating. Yeah. I have a sauce that I call the Magic Secret Sauce that um, was mind-boggling. I'm not going to share the recipe with anyone, but I will, like, give you some when you come over. Okay. It's two simple ingredients – Mind-boggling. I did the same thing with our hamburgers, right? We made the meal. Well, I want to tell you this. We had a chili. I also served a chili, right? When I created it, because it was getting cold. I know it's Vegas, but the winters are cold, so people wanted chili, chili, right? So I took the canned chili that we bought, right? I put in Jennifer. You ready for this? Three sticks of cinnamon, one can of Coca-Cola, and I put it in the kettle, and I stirred it all the time. And they lost their minds. They never tasted chili. Now that was two hundred and thirty-nine bean chili that we would sell. Yeah. Okay. Are you familiar? Are you familiar? Wait a minute. Are you familiar with two hundred thirty-nine bean chili? Well, I will tell you, I am because because one in more Arizona, yeah. where we have native seed search. I believe that's the number of bean varietals they offer seeds to. Well, you understand, one more makes it too farty. Hey, the other thing we're talking about today. Now we're talking about James Beard Awards, right? How classy. Go ahead. Let's get our let's get our guest on. I can't keep this guy I, back. I, I, this is the this is the this is the uh, this is the prelude to his arrival. So when we all get to slow down and think about what it is we do, who we are, what our signature style is, and we get to know ourselves a little bit more, and then we get the time to marinate to let our mm -hmm. minds wander so that the creative impulses that allow our art to be distinctive and distinguished and unique to us can actually marinate and, and percolate and happen. When we think about where we go on the other side of all this, when we come out of this pandemic and we think about what are we, what kind of place are we going to open up? Is it going to be a brand new place or a moderately differentiated reimagined new place? We turn to our design teams our artists and experts, architects and engineers to imagine what comes next. And so let's talk about where we go on the other side of this. How do you address those in your book? And who would you want to speak to to address this topic as an expert? Because this show is all about having our friends in the business talk to our other friends in the business. So right. what have we got lined up today? Well, today we've got, I mean, I don't even know how to, this, 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 Aaron, we're, let's talk, to, let's bring Aaron on. Aaron Roof is Be, here. Because what my, what I want to talk, I mean, obviously when we talk about the, the book and, and Food and Beverage Magazine's guide, we are talking about building and developing from right. ground up, re, re, reimagining spaces, doing all that kind of great stuff, right? I don't even know if Aaron does all that. Let's talk to Aaron. He's in Cincinnati. Yes. Let's, 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 I know oh he's God. got. Have you ever eaten a Cincinnati hot dog? Have Let's you ever had Aaron. Cincinnati spaghetti? Look at this, Aaron. Have you had a hot dog? If in you're Cincinnati? talking about Cincinnati uh, spaghetti, you're talking about Cincinnati chili. You are talking about one and the same, Aaron. We've Ruth. got to get that right. <laughs> well, I'm talking about it because most people are going to be scratching their heads saying, What are these people talking about? But as a Cincinnati, and are you native to the area? Did you grow up with that tradition? Because it's so foreign to anybody who's not from there. And it's so delightful and irresistible for when it's introduced to us by yeah. our Cincinnati friends that we've got to talk about it. 
just well, I'm from just north else. of here. I'm from just north of here, but it's close enough to say that I'm very much familiar with uh, Cincinnati chili as it stands, and it is definitely uh, a part of our everyday lives, 100%. Yes. Some of the other things that people might not know about Cincinnati uh, is its proximity to bourbon country. And that there is a really rich bourbon and cocktail tradition in Cincinnati as well. Uh, talk a little bit about how that um, influences you. Well, I think from a you know from a food and beverage perspective, you know we're we're always looking for inspiration, and it's um, from beer to to barbecue to bourbon. You know the the three Bs. You know there's a lot of small. Um, small influential groups in the area. And of course you have the big ones in the outside of the Lexington area, but there's a lot of, uh, of, of a, there's a very strong undercurrent of, you know, micro brews and um, new rip distillery is, is in, uh, is in Newport and, you know, the barbecue joints that are around town and just all the way through over the Rhine, just the area here from a food and beverage perspective is so inspiring. It's hard to just limit it to one, one aspect of bourbon it's kind of it's kind of everywhere and it feels like you know before all this happened it was every weekend there was a new there was a new adventure a new experience down in our cincinnati area so if you haven't been to this area you should definitely come and see us when we're allowed to of course it, we really i mean we really can't overstate how rich that area is yes. because it's at the nexus of like five or six different traditions Mm -hmm. uh, that that layer beautifully and prove to be one of those sort of surprise factors about a city, but it would also serve to be really inspirational. Would you talk a little bit about the work you do and how Cincinnati as a place is really a great source of inspiration? Well, you know, what I do is I work for a uh, multidisciplinary uh, brand experience design firm. We do architecture, interior design and graphics. And our brand, and also branding services. So we touch all facets of retail and restaurant. And you know, I've been doing this for uh, 20 years, working in restaurants for 15. And you know, uh, my my role as a client leader and a project leader, you know, we touch brands from Yum Brands, KFC, Pizza Hut, Subway. You know, we do a lot of work with the Cincinnati Reds. We work with you know, we worked with uh, some of the larger brands of some of the uh, out of Florida, Miller's Ale House. We touch a lot. Of, we do a lot of work. We've worked with the Cracker Barrels and. You know, it kind of spans the spans the spectrum as far as the type of work that we we do from a restaurant perspective. So, you know, we're really trying to find opportunities to build a uh, an elevated experience for all of our clients right. and try to to innovate and help them change who they are when they need to change and improve where they need to change. So, it's really a very it's a great opportunity for us as we start to look at what how the market is changing now. There's a lot of negatives you can pull out of it, but there's also a lot of opportunities. When we're talking about Nelson and the experiences that you create, and you would imagine, like me, wondering why a company like yours isn't in New York or San Francisco or Los Angeles or even Chicago. How is it that all of this influence and inspiration can flow out of a place like Cincinnati? And of course, we've addressed all those those intrinsic qualities that give that artistic terroir, all of that really fertile, rich inspiration. But I want to take a step back. Uh, and in some ways, as I was getting ready to have this conversation with you today, I was looking at your projects online 
one of the things that was really struck by is that because you personally have been doing this for as many years as you have, when you go back and you look at the assignment you would have had 20 years ago and the assignment you would have had two years ago, I'm going to imagine that those would be very different things. Is that true? Well, um, wow, that's a, that's a good question. Um, I think that, you know, design as it, at its core is a, pro, a, a problem solving and a, 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 you know, design in its core is a problem solving issue. So, you know, a lot of times our clients would come to us with different, with different needs about their brand and who they are and what they want to communicate from a, from a, uh, perspective of an experience, right? Or a food point of view or a brand point of view. But what I think what's, what changes the most is the consumer. So what, what's core to us is trying to understand as much about the consumer and not try to tell them what they need, but try to respond to their need states. So by that rationale, I would say that, yes, 100%, the need states, you know, 20 years ago when I first started versus two years ago is, is night and day comparatively. I mean, there's so many different aspects of how we engage retail and restaurants that are, that are just light years different and, right. and um, you know, developing a more meaningful experience and signature moments and finding those elevated experiences really becomes a, um, you know, an ever changing and evolving animal, you know, especially when we come out of this COVID environment with a, a more connected economy, right? We're being forced to now we're all learning how to do that more and more. Most of us were already connected, but as we come out of this, you know, we're going to, you know, the, the, the consumer is going to expect more out of brands and retail restaurants, everything's coming to the forefront, you know, the trying to express your brand in a unique way or finding those signature moments and connecting on an emotional level, you know, that's, it's, it's going to be, you know, we're more connected. It might even become more human than less. I know everybody's kind of feeling like less, but, you know, I heard a client say the other day, it was the, what we may end up learning out of this is how much more human we need to be. When we go back and look 20 years ago, were we using the terms guest experience? Were we using that as the point of solution orientation? Or was the world of restaurant design, architecture, and interiors uh, built around something very different than it is today? Uh, well, I would say that it probably, for us, and, you know, I, I've been doing this for 20 years and I've been at the same company for 20 years. So in all honesty, I would I would say that, you know, my experience working with FRCH Nelson and Nelson, we we have always looked at the consumer and we've always tried to educate ourselves and provide a journey or a, an understanding about an experience that's not just the designer's point of view on what you think it should be or. Right. coming in and being at a very high level and creating this monument unto ourselves. It's, it's always going to be responsive to who you're addressing. And I think from a, you know, from my point of view as a designer, I would say that that's the most important thing is your, you know, who you're targeting. And that's, I think that that's always been to some degree at the core of everything that we do. The reason I asked that question 
is because it occurred to me as I was preparing for today's conversation that in fact you are your own taskmaster because yeah. you are in fact with each successive iteration of experience enhancement that you create for your guests, you're educating and elevating their expectation for the involvement and the uh, surroundings of the environment and the experience yeah. that they have. And so as fine dining falls away and we see and hear the thing, oh, we don't eat like that anymore. Well, it's true on every level, not just that we're not using silver and, and uh, crystal and tablecloths, but we're not eating like we, we ate before in a lot of different ways. And part of that's due to your reimagination of where we go next based on where you've already brought us. Do you ever think about it in terms of that? Well, I think that what's interesting is the notion that fine dining is falling off. I, I, I think what's happening is, is that elevated experiences are becoming, you know, are becoming more democratized, right? So we, we have, you know, from the QSR world up to casual dine and then elevated dine above that, everybody's trying to improve who they are and improve how their consumers see them. So, you know, fine dining being redefined as more of an elevated casual dine, I think it, it gives us the ability to, you know, expand our consumer bases and, and introduce ourselves as a brand, whatever client that might be, to, to you know, bring somebody a more elevated customer journey. I, I, I guess I'm, we're just trying to find ourselves in a, in a position where we're responding in a flexible way to the market. Regardless of whoever, whatever uh, uh, restaurant style or market you sit in, I mean, we have right now a lot of restaurants locally, and they could be uh, categorized as fine dining down to QSR. And everybody's trying to uniquely solve the same problem right now. And that's, I think, what's a really interesting thing about what we're going to learn in all this is you know, we're going to be able to watch this evolution live in real time as you see some of the some of the more elevated fine dining experiences are turning themselves into how do we go third party? How do we reach out and connect digitally? How do we get people to come in and take food home and share it with their families? You know, you could have a fine dining client doing that. Right now you have a QSR client and they're all doing the same thing. They're all trying to connect. They're all trying to find their a position in the hearts and minds of consumers in a very similar way. And what we're going to watch come out of this is going to be fascinating. It's going to be this sort of elevated, multifaceted, super flexible restaurant market that is everybody's going to be ready to play. It's going to be awesome. It, it's, it sounds, what I hear you saying is that somehow you've got to create a immediately responsive mechanism in an organization and a restaurant today that didn't have to exist before. Is there ever a, a time and a place in our recent history where somebody, a restaurant had had to be this immediately responsive to an external circumstance where they literally had to like same day, next day, change some dimension of their operations like this? Well, I would say that a lot of, a lot of our clients are, have already been doing this. I mean, when we look at you know, I, I was taking some notes on on what, you know, 
what my my big takeaways are as far as what we're learning out of this. And, you know, it's really about requiring a, a low touch, high impact experience. And this crisis has really forced us as as a, as brands and as designers to really double down on what was really already in motion. I mean, we had so many different you know clients that were already looking at third party and finding ways to to connect uh, connect with flexibility. And then now, in addition to that, they're being forced to look at their food supply and their supply right. chains and their sources and resourcing and just how does that become more flexible? So the entire operation of a restaurant is 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 in complete evolution right now and it's but but i would say that some of the brands and our experiences or my experience we have uh you know in australia we we just recently designed and and were a part of an exercise with kentucky fried chicken kfc in the australia in the sopac market and they they had a market need in the at the t- uh, two years ago to develop a drive-through only concept. And it was an opportunity for them to think forward of how do we become more nimble and more flexible in these markets and how do we connect ourselves to these consumers and how do we get more conversion but still connect on a very emotive way. And those those types of things were already in play. The the race becomes clients who are maybe in the infancy of those programs or you know, not not really prepared for that. I think some restaurant markets like, you know, some of the elevated dine aren't doing carry out the way they're being forced to now. So those are those are those formats. And locally, we have some really great restaurants that are just they're doing a great job evolving and turning their their restaurants into carry out kitchens and they're moving nimble. And it, I think it's in the nature of culinary and and chefs and and you know just the environment of food that's why i've always wanted that's why i love this 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 discipline because the nature of it supports you know this entrepreneurship this idea that you know what i can do this this way if i want to and i can just push it out the door and people will come in i can make my clients happy i can make my customers happy and i can still give food and provide food to the community that that needs it really badly right now. And, you know, you see some even larger chains that are, you know, putting farmers markets out and, you know, Panera's Panera's trying to sell groceries, you know, everybody's trying to do this outreach. I think it's, it's, it's pretty amazing right now to see what's happening. One of the things that's so interesting and and there are about a thousand follow-up questions in what you just Mm. said, which is why I'm so (laughs) glad you came to visit with us today. But I'm really struck throughout this experience, Michael and I have been talking about the fact that this is a really high touch business Yes. in a no touch world. How can we imagine and then accept and innovate high touch experience in a no touch world? The idea that there is some new inventive way that will allow us to be the things that we all are in this business, which is welcoming and touchy, as careful as we can be. Let's use the word touchy. Touchy. Yeah, but we got to be careful. 
you know, we, we want to serve you and we want to serve you generously. And we want to serve you without doing any harm. I mean, we're all on that. There are several pages. We're on the same page across mm -hmm. the industry. Yeah. And, and that's, that's where you, that's where you live and work. Well, I think that, um, it's interesting. This is a really, I mean, this is the hot topic, right? So, you know, really what our clients are trying to figure out is the balance, right? So I think that no matter what happens, whether there be treatments, vaccines, you know, government lifted restrictions, those types of things, you know, we, we really don't have a lot of control over that. But what we do have control over is what we know and what how we can evolve, right? So um, we can't unknow what we've learned regardless of whatever happens. So what we want to try to do is long-term. We, we want to acknowledge and commit ourselves to creating, you know, streams of engagement that are flexible, yeah. that have, you know, we, we try to innovate as a brand, not just because we need to innovate, but we need to find where our innovation can be. You know, we need to think digitally about supporting the journey and maybe it's time to abandon the kiosk and just admit that we all have kiosks in our pockets. You know, at the end of the day, why do I need to have a touch screen when I can engage here? You know, to me, I think that it, it really frees us up to start thinking about some of those long term, large large picture think uh, you know you're telling how me, we, i love that you're using silver lining thinking here i i mean i have to i love it it's great i mean the, the, we, we're very human we're, we live in a human world i believe in who we are and what we stand for i think we're going through some dark times if you've been in any industry long enough you see ups and downs and i think we collectively are going to get this through, get through this together. And a lot of times I, I say to my team, there isn't a better group of people I'd rather go through this with and strategize with and figure out solutions for ourselves and for our clients to make a better, more connected, you know, community of consumers and, you know, just people, you know, community. I mean, Aaron, can you talk a little bit? Uh, we're speaking with Aaron uh, Roof. He's uh, one of the, um, directors at uh, FRCH Nelson and Nelson can you can you please um, talk a little bit about your process and when you and your team of creatives sit down at the table um, how do you how do you start is is it by identifying problem one that you're trying to solve or is there always a quote unquote sort of an assignment statement what's the process well our process always starts with a conversation you know, I think that for us, what's important is to learn as much as we inform. So whenever we would have a, a, a project come up that's a prototype, let's say it's an innovation project. We have a, you know, it's it could be a big brand. It could be a brand that doesn't exist. They come in, they say, I want to I want to design. I, and, you know, there's there are certain aspects, science 101 about, you know, footprint, seat counts, operational models, all that stuff, you know. You, you know, the kitchen and the and the, the the actual chef, whoever it may be, would come in and inform all of that to the most part. But what we want to do is learn as much as we can about the individual who's providing us with the opportunity to create. So we want to learn about the consumer. We want to learn about the operations. We want to learn about 
sort of what what are your dreams? Why are we doing this? What's 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 our purpose? What's our mission? And then and we want to build a story around that. I'm sorry to interrupt, but how frequently right now do all those other missions take back seat to the first mission of us to get back open? We've got to satisfy oh. these sort of pandemic CDC, state restaurant association, corporate uh, yeah. mandates. How, how are you reconciling that? Well, I think right now what you're finding is that there are some very quick uh, go-to-market solutions. We have some production partners that actually have been talking to quite frequently about how we can provide, you know, uh, plastic barriers or, you know, um, hand sanitizing stations and those types of things. So there are some really quick, quick solutions to get to market and then execute, uh, get to market and, and execute. And, you know, there's, I don't know if anybody's been to the hardware store re recently, but, you know, they've got the six foot circles on the floor. And, you know, as we start to look at those types of solutions, you know, they're a little bit more temporal. They're not, they're not exactly what I would qualify as a long-term solution. You know, the, the, the idea of, everybody for the rest of eternity standing six feet from each other with a glass shield in between everybody probably isn't the most realistic solution. But I think what we're trying to do, and a lot of our clients have already been in, you know, internalizing a lot of this and understanding how they want to come to market and how they want to solve their problems. They have their own internal task forces. But what we're really trying to do, and when we look at, you know, some of the specific projects we have in our sort of in our on our docket right now is really how do we make a, the most seamless experience with the least amount of touch where we get the most amount of value out of it so you know when i talk when i talked earlier about this connected economy of elevated service you know the the amenities that we we don't just because we're not you know, talking to somebody face to face and we're interacting here, it doesn't mean our expectations are, are any lower. Our expectations of that experience being elevated and, and delivering on what we would have gotten in that experience, in the, you know, the hands-on experience, the handcrafted experience that we've been sort of centering around for the last, you know, 15 years, you know, it's, it's still there. People want that signature moment. That they they expect it and they're always going to expect it. So I think what we're really trying to do is is not necessarily deal with the problem at hand because it's evolving so quickly, is to try to figure out for our customers what does it mean to you to 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 innovate? How do you get your customers to engage with you in a, in a digital way, or how do you you know? How do you see your evolution coming in real time the way we're going to see all the other brands evolve? So, you know, it's really about just trying to figure out, you know, it's not about just it's not about just change or design change. It's, it's about an, an elevated service journey. It becomes that multifaceted, flexible solution. And it's, and, and it's the so difficult because it's never going to be a one. It's, yeah. it's not a one size fits all solution. And a lot of these things right now are all one size fits all where you get a plastic panel and, you know, the government's protecting people. That's great. We're, you know, I'm, we're all on board to, to be safe. Everybody wants to be safe. But, right. you know, these aren't they're not long term solutions. There are some really creative solutions out there. There's some. You know, I saw there's actually a restaurant in Northern Ohio that's got you know, shower curtains up. And I think there's a restaurant I saw in that Amsterdam. 
you know, Amsterdam, they've got these cool cubes. And what's interesting is you look at those solutions, those are locally driven innovations of that's something that is that's unique. It has a point of view and it's not one size fits all. They're both very, very thought out. And, you know, you could see this idea that restaurant in Amsterdam, you know, maybe that's that works for them. They yeah. know themselves. Absolutely. Absolutely. You know, and that's when more, you're yeah. talking about that six foot circle, that's not going to work in the dense congestion of Mumbai. But six foot circles are really easy to pull off in Montana. I mean, yeah. the, the, that's really not necessarily the issue so much as how do we um, expect some of these bright solutions to find their way into our world? Where do you look for best practices at the moment as people all over the country that are tuned in? small restaurateurs and brands alike are looking to us for some, you know, friend in the business sources for inspiration. Where would you send folks to see the kinds of things that you've identified as smart solutions? Well, I know, you know, for the most part, we are, we're in data collection mode right now. Like, there are some solutions out there that, you know, if you look at the way Kroger has has adapted, it's brilliant. And you look at some of the other things that have been in progress before all this came down. I mean, you're just not going to have a lot of, you know, really, really quick to market thought out solutions. When you see them, you're you're going to see something that's really, truly unique. And I think that you know, I, I brought up Kroger, but the, you know, some of the other um, brands that are trying to evolve to, to go, to go to market with more of this carry out, you know, trying to um, do more curbside, you know, every, every restaurant concept in the world right now has no other choice but to do curbside. But if you look at how we're adapting to that and it's, it's just, it's starting to happen everywhere and you really don't have to look too far. Can you see the images that we're um, posting up here of the KFC? Yeah. Can you yes. talk a little bit about that? He wasn't too impressed that all the images started popping up. You said no, you I images? saw him, and Aaron was like, "Yeah, just like I that." See like, the, yeah, <laughs> yeah. I've, I've, I'm keeping my eyes on the screen. I see what you're doing over there. Um, I mean, it's not wanna... as pretty as this image. I'm not going to lie, <laughs> but all right, let's go through yeah. these, Aaron. So yeah, so this was a you know this particular concept is is very reflective of some of the things that we're we're really looking at right now is giving you an opportunity to be very very um minimal in your expression of built environment from a kitchen perspective you know operations is very slim there isn't a lot of you know it's a very simple prefab building with some uh very very smart bold graphics on it you know we we allow the 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 actual stalls themselves um, to be the beacon or to be what's essentially the restaurant or the experience, you know, and you're really controlling your queue by allowing the release of of uh, when your order's ready, and it gives you the ability to also um, entertain along the way because there's a, a, a massive digital component to this thing. So can I, can know, I just say, Aaron, that they're picking sure. it up on the right on the right side of the car, the correct yes. side because it's Australia. Yes, that's correct. Okay. That's, that's, that's it looks a little <laughs> funny, right? It's a little yes. funny. Now, is this open in Australia right now? Yes, it is. There's actually two of them. 
in Sydney. Well, there may be more. They were they were running. Uh, yes, one of the, the first one I believe is in is in Queensland. Yes. Okay. Look at this. And, and unfortunately, is, you know, we, we haven't been to actually see it. So the idea is that you you can either order it from uh, you know from your office or wherever your home, wherever you're coming from, or you can pull into those stalls. And then what happens is is you can either engage somebody from a um, like a manual, like it's a standard drive-through on the end, or you can you basically just put in a number on the screen and it tells you when when the when you're going to be when the food's ready, it releases you. Hey, Aaron, can I? So ask that's to that's to download the app, Mike. Sorry. Yeah, that's okay. Yeah, uh, Aaron, I, I have a question about who is already thinking ahead to this moment in time. Had you already been brought in to do this kind of futuristic? and anticipatory planning for brands for moments like these? Is this the kind of thing that our industry would have spent any time or good time or good money anticipating so that, so that just those kinds of experiences in Australia are being tested out for these moments? Was this one of those moments that that was designed for? Are there other, is this what you're doing? Are you planning ahead? Well, that specific solution was a market was a market solution. But you know, when we when we engage a brand, we might ask the question, "What happens if you don't have a restaurant?" And and actually, in the last 20, 12 months, we were on an innovation project before all this went down, and that was one of the questions that was asked. Yeah. I mean, you know, worst case scenario, if you're really trying to talk big picture. As far as what the vision it could be for a restaurant, you need to ask hard questions, and that you know those are some of the things that we evaluate. And it's at the time it wasn't a real world problem, but when you want to look at real world problems, this this situation we find ourselves in right now, it it, it literally it literally is exactly like what we've been trying to convince some of our clients, you know, to do. the The issues that we have is just, you know, the the need, the extreme need wasn't necessarily there. So the evolution was happening at a, at a much slower rate than perhaps it needed to. But Well, and it's you know, tough if you've got a history and a legacy yeah. and a family tradition and say, well, you know, that's not how Grandpa Joe did it. It's not yeah. how I'm going to do it. Well, and, you know, and you have, you have brands that are, they're evolving at the speed that they, they are comfortable with. And, and they're evolving at the speed in which their consumers are comfortable with. And, you know, at the end of the day, it's, you know, we've all been, we're all in a race now to this online uh, connected economy that we're talking about. So the, the race is on now. And there are some brands that are ahead of the game because they're, you know, they found a need and they found, uh, uh, you know, their, their, their particular consumers embraced it. Um, you know, there are a lot of those restaurant brands that have succeeded very, very heavily in those. And we're, we always use those as benchmarks. They're, you know, the, the proof is in the pudding and you look at the people that are the brands that are doing it really well. They're the ones that are going to come out of this strong and they're just going to continue to build and innovate off of the work that's already been done. So, you know, if you, you know, you asked the question earlier, Jennifer, about, you know, where, where do you go to find the inspiration? And, you know, the inspiration is all around us right now about how you see these restaurants all evolving and how these restaurateurs and, and franchisees are are taking their business and and making what they can out of it and it's it's becoming a really interesting uh, and a really interesting study on how we 
um, can make ourselves better in the performance perspective. You know, I, I one of the notes I wanted to bring up earlier was just this idea of, you know, expanding on this idea of what what does the brand mean to the customer? You know, when you start looking at modifying a restaurant footprint and making and bringing in more focused dining or, you know, bringing in, you know, more flexibility to take over front of house spaces to to accommodate higher volumes of takeout and off premise. Maybe that even changes your day part. Maybe, you know, you didn't have a day part that you could absolutely build on now that you are starting to learn more about your business and how you can be flexible. And But, but you, you didn't know. want to do that so much that you were shifting consumer expectation right. right out of the decision set that they no longer have the expectation that you're going to do something for them that they've always relied on you doing for them. Sure. And you know, some of it is just, you know, there's a, there's a limitation to what you can do in the moment from an operational perspective, especially from when you start to look at, you know, your food supply and your sourcing and everything. So it's not like that's something that can change very quickly. So, you know, these things are in place to help us, you know, deliver food and deliver things on it from an economic perspective. And, you know, but, but how do we get to sale conversion? That's not hundred percent relied on reliant upon brick and mortar. You know, that's, that's, everybody it's so funny that you know you everybody's trying to solve that right now you know well, what's everybody. happening and in, in a sense i hear you saying is that the universal truths that we used to be able to build our businesses in this industry on are no longer necessarily the universal truths what are some of the universal truths that we do now know we can hang our hat on and have emerged through this to become very much that that new universal truth reality for us. That's wow, a hard that's question. A, that's Jennifer. a hard question. Why would you ask young Aaron that because question? He, because he's the world's leading expert Uni in this. He's universal got truth. Ball. He's got. Let me tell you, I want to answer that. I want to answer that question. I think that drive. I will never open a restaurant without a drive-through ever again because yeah. you. This is something you could never have foreseen happening, this pandemic. You, uh, everybody wants, you know, seating and this and that. But the reality is, I don't know. I mean, it is too, look what's going on. It is scary. People are losing their businesses right. for being 45 days being closed. Losing. Hey, Tell me. Uh, Let me see what I just need saw. To have a space. Is the restaurant of the future a service that brings you the food without you even having to leave your house? They cook it in a ghost kitchen. They deliver it to you. You never even need to see anything that's branded other than what you see digitally. Aaron, is that where we're headed? Would Aaron go out of business if that was the case? No. Of course I mean, I, I think it's a really good point. I, I think that, you know, this idea of ghost or dark kitchen, I think is it gives it, it's an interesting notion that I think. Um, could give a lot of brands an, ex an extensive amount of flexibility in third-party and off-premise food production and supply. Mm -hmm. I think that you know those ghost kitchens could ultimately become anything because you're not limited by people walking right. in and expecting a certain experience, right? So I, I you know, the Look at dining this, room, you know, dining room 2021 has to go beyond seat count for measuring your return on investment. You know, you have to, you have, you have to, you have to count on losing your branded experience to some degree 
because people don't, you know, whether or not you're standing in that space or you're ordering food on your phone, they expect the same brand experience. So, you know, why not expand your footprint by just using a hundred percent digital experience and supply the food quality that you would typically provide? I and mean, it, I think it's, it's and brilliant. You have the hard job of reimagining, re-engineering, and reinventing something as simple for a celebrity chef as a table touch. Yeah. If I'm coming to a restaurant and Emerald's name is on it, and he happens to be in the house that night because it's my anniversary, and he comes by my table, then there's mm. the payoff. How do you deal with a table touch? Something as simple as a table touch in a universe like this. That's a good question. I mean, this is where this is the reality, Michael. You live in Las Vegas where they've made a fortune and an entirely new landscape thanks to people like Elizabeth Blau and Shep Gordon in this in this time they were prescient in getting us away from the buffet to the gourmet, bringing in Sirio Maccioni and the celebrated right. chefs that now populate. But we go to those places for two reasons because because we we love their philosophy of food flavor and hospitality mm -hmm. but we also hope that we'll see those people because that is the relationship we hope that we cultivate by going there people understand right. that and, and when you go to one of hubert keller's restaurants and he's there you will never be the same because you will be so impressed by him you'll be so warmed by people like mary sue and susan from border these are the experiences that make a lot of difference for people's relationship it's not just about the food and it's about all the things that go into the food for sure. So what happens when we start reimagining how people are truly connecting? I guess they'll have to lean out of the window and smile. <laughs> look or, at this guy. This guy, look what this guy says from Williamson Brothers Barbecue. We're having a lot of success with, with, basically drive-through. We've hit some pre-coronavirus numbers in the opening days of doing it, right? And that's, the, they had, it was, a, it was a barbecued place. They didn't have drive-throughs, you know what I mean? Now he's like, this is what they've got to do. They're pivoting. They're being, and they're not being disruptive anymore. Coronavirus was disruptive. Right. Now right. it's just pivot, just pivot. Well, honey, get a new fear is disruptive. If there's a romaine lettuce scare from salmonella or E. coli, yes. guess what? I'm not driving through anywhere for anything that has yeah, romaine lettuce. Exactly. That's disruptive, right? Now, look at this. Three decades of restaurant jobs were lost <laughs> in the last two months. I don't want to be rude, but somebody's been in the business for three decades and they're a waiter. Maybe they need to move on anyway. You know what I'm saying, Aaron? They're probably a little slow. <laughs> I'm you not, said you know, that, not, not me. I'm no, just no, thinking no. out loud. No, I'm just thinking go, out you loud. Gotta go to, no, you got to go to places like Durgan Park or in Los Angeles, Musso and Frank. Camp, where Camp the, the service Camp bartenders have been there. Or, or at the Algonquin Hotel where the bartender had been there for literally 80 years. But Do you I, like but that I, wanna... I just put up things like that, Aaron? I'm sorry. Do you like that I just put up little tidbits, little morsels I'm, of information? I, I'm cool with it. I, Is I'm... this too Jiminy Glick, me leaning in and talking like this? <laughs> Jennifer? I feel like eating a jelly bean. I, I, you I are like the I did that. Jiminy Glick, aren't you? Do, I love that. Do you like that I did that, Aaron? Do you like that yeah. I did that? <laughs> I, I do want to I, I find your your commentary, Jennifer, about, you know, the idea of the celebrity chef. I think that, you know, while right now we're in this you know lockdown mode, I think that 
you know, if you look at the parallels that we talked about earlier, where you've got a restaurant in Amsterdam, this is really elevated experience and you've got these little pods and pockets. I have had, I, you know, I've had a lot of experiences working with, with, you know, some very high level chefs. And I, you know, I, I think at the end of the day, what, what they really want, what, what is most important to them is that you're enjoying their food, but at the same time, they want it to be this really quiet and unique island. It feels like there's something there that you can continue to build on and still remain in this, this mindset of being responsible, being, you know, being connected. Maybe it's, maybe we don't, maybe we don't double click or lean in on a digital aspect all the time, but how do you build in this idea of elevated experience, but still keep ourselves in a, in a safe mindset. I just, I, I, I think the opportunities are there. I just don't think we want to, you know, from a gut reaction, start eliminating the idea that those things are, are, are still possible. I think. Right. But if, know, if, on, if on the Imagineering <clears throat> side of this, I've got a celebrated chef. Yeah. I mean, I don't know about you, but I've been watching pals of mine doing fantastic cooking classes and, and fun things sure. for their own homes. Everybody from Jeffrey Zakarian to James Beard Award winner, Virginia Ellis. David uh, Burley. Uh, and uh, Virginia Willis is fantastic because she doesn't have a restaurant. Uh, and the things that she does are extraordinary. And Jennifer, all I what's think, the... oh, Michael, hang on one second, because I want to share this with Aaron, because I think, you know, this is the kind of reason why we have these guys on. I want to imagine that a chef would have a, a cooking show as part of their restaurant communication. And the chef shows you how to make five different recipes in, in a week's time. Say there was a show that's on every day, right about three o'clock. And it says, here's how, here's me making uh, eggplant Parmesan. And, and here I am making a, a turkey curry. And, and here I am making, you know, my classic roast. Sure. And, 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 and people say, I want to eat that. And you, you give them the opportunity to say, well, we're going to make this our special in our restaurants. And and is it going to be possible, given the nature of all of these things, to do something like that and in yeah. some way enhance and enrich the already existing relationship rather than yeah. make it feel like we've all lost something? How can it no, be I like it. And not I, less? Yeah, I think that there's opportunity there. I think the, you know, these, the notion of sort of a lot of um, some of our, I heard one client in particular, they were working on these. Um, online happy hour, you know, the, you know, how do you potentially provide a meal kit and have, you know, have whoever the, the chef is walking you through it, you know, everybody's online, you know, you're actually having an opportunity. I mean, I think you could probably get a premium out of that. So I think there are those, you know, there is a digital connection to this thing, the staying connected, but I, I, I still believe in the the, re the return to some degree around the built environment. And this is just something, this is kind of my point of view on this is I, I believe that, you know, we will once, once we get to a, a point where protocols are a little bit more realized around how we can behave and be, and be responsible with how we go out into the world and go to restaurants. But I, I, I believe that we can design strategically to, to accommodate those needs. I really do. I, I believe that, I mean, I don't think we have to put anybody in a bubble behind a glass wall, so to speak. But I think we can still, we can still go to a restaurant and enjoy it and sit down and feel safe, 
And there's going to be protocols in place that will evolve and they will, we will come out of this thing. And, you know, I, I, I believe that those things are still very much in play. Without, without having, I'm, I'm without hanging having on, I'm hanging on. <laughs> I'm still hanging on, Jen. You told me to hang on. I'm, I'm hanging yeah. on. Michael and I yesterday had a conversation with the president of Tutnauer USA, who is in the business of sterilization. And he showed us a sterilization pouch in which tools for a surgical procedure or a dental examination would normally be, you know, sterilized and then sealed. And yesterday, or, or a fun night after a bar. Why, why, why does it have to be <laughs> surgical or dental? Yes. I'm just wondering. You yeah, are in Vegas. Vegas, land of the fetish <laughs> and the booty. But, but he held up a pouch with a knife, fork, and spoon in it. And we were having the debate. If you have to go away from that Emily Post fine dining knife, fork, and spoon, tablecloth, and crystal, uh, if you're willing, if you're going to forego that, uh, were you willing to forego that in favor of having the, the certainty that your utensils for the meal are sterilized? Have you looked at stuff like that as well? Well, I think that those are part of long-term solutions to me. I mean, I, you know, the whole idea of, um, oh, there is a, a, a couple things here. So, you know, this idea of the operational preparation for what's going to come, where this is going to um, evolve to. So this idea of better preparing for your menu editing at times like this. So, you know, I know that's one of the hardest things. It's sacred you know, the menu, obviously, I think that, you know, automated production and food prep and assembly, I think it's, you know, not seeing everybody touching everything all the time. This notion of handcraft will probably be slightly more diminished, but I think as long as your operational procedures are there and people can see it, you're going to start building more trust. I think, you know, my, just anecdotally, my wife was through a drive-through recently and she had to throw out what she got because she had no trust in what was handed to her. And, you know, so I think that what happens is, is you really need to show that you're changing, not just talk about it. I think that's, you know, it's very easy to go out there and, and wave your brand flag and say, you know, we, we've changed and we're, we're going to, you know, here's our procedures. But if, if your, if your customers don't see it and they don't believe it, you, it's not, it's not there. So, you know, how do we how do we show it in, you know, celebrated in our food supply chains, the opportunities to evolve? You know, how do we update our packaging with things that, you know, I, w I read something statistically the other day that said people, you know, right now are, are leaning more towards these sort of individually wrapped, you know, food product, you know, to go because they they it feels and, and the appearances is, is that you're you less people are touching it. You know, it's not, it doesn't, it's, it's, it's contained and it feels safer. It feels more sterile. Well, sterile you know, in this moment. I mean, not, not one of us as parents are going to let our kid go and grab a handful of loose M&Ms from a job, right. from a, from a bowl at Halloween. I mean, yeah. we've already changed that, that part. And, and that sort of addresses my next question, which is, is the ritual as we've known it, in the restaurant and hospitality industry dead or is it just ready to be reimagined? Oh, reimagined. I think the ritual will absolutely become something very unique for each client, for each brand. And I think there is a, you know, it, it, you know, when you hear the words, it's my pleasure. What do you think? Don't ask me right? that, Aaron. 
So, uh, well, you are in Vegas, so it's because in Vegas they don't say they don't say it's been a pleasure doing business with you. In Vegas, they say it's a business doing pleasure with you. Well, <laughs> That's why I had to move. You know, I got to be keep honest my kids with you. Away from I walked right into that one. So that's that's my fault. But I think that there are some things that you can do from a brand perspective that are just cultural things that you can reinforce with your consumers about how you go about cleaning or how you go about having having a manager walking around and ensuring that everybody knows. And it's you know, you really got to walk the walk. And, you know, it's it's you know, most restaurants are already acting on a lot of the procedures that are being requested, right? So the idea of being a clean environment is not foreign to anybody in this industry. So it's really just coming out and making sure that clean clean is baseline. Yeah. Yeah, But it's baseline for foodborne illnesses, Jennifer, right? Now we're (laughs) taking that to the next level, right? So now they're saying like, like even here, they're like, well, we're going to clean the elevator buttons more often. Well, it, more often isn't going to help that one guy that you missed right. in between, right? We're yeah. going to wipe the tables down. Now they have to sort of rotate the tables and disinfect things. But while we're on that, that's going to cost the small operators more money, more money. And they're only allowed to have half the – how are they going to do this, Jen? They're only going to allow to have half the people come patrons coming in. The things that Aaron talks about are phenomenal, but – these small guys, how are they going to retrofit to little like booths, right? You know what I mean? Like Jeffrey Chotero had that booth idea way back in the old days in Vegas when Rum Jun- when Jungle Road opened up. Oh, my right? God. Rum Jungle. I remember that. Right. But it's an amazing concept. But if you have a small pizza place, you can't pull that off, right? Because you don't even have the money to be able to pay the staff to cook and, and to clean. So what we need to do is figure out a way for them to be able to succeed, right? And I, you know, I maybe maybe Aaron's client. I mean, Aaron, do you have clients of all economic levels, or are they all the big shots, like the the, the KFCs or the big corporate level guys? We we, I mean, we go big to small. I mean, we we don't like turning away great restaurant brands and gr- great restaurant opportunities. So when we see something like that, it's you know we definitely address big to small. So I, you know, for us. That's a good question. I mean, in small, the, the, it's easy for, for me to say it's big and small. A lot of our clients are small because we work with corporate entities, but they're small because they're franchisees. Right. Right. So our solutions need to be scalable. So this idea of, of delivering for the big, for the big behemoth, it, it falls apart very quickly when you realize that your franchisee can't afford it. So most of, what we're, so. Yeah, most of what we're trying to accomplish is working at a very small level. It needs to work at a small level. So, you know, and I think that's, you know, for us, that's one of the things that makes it very unique in how we approach projects because, you know, the, from an architecture perspective, but that, you know, not to get into that, but it's, you know, I, I don't know the answer to that, Mike. And I, you know, I certainly don't want right. to make something no, up. No, because a lot I, I of think these that are... Each, Second, when you when you define right? when you define success, what are you, you know what, what types of successes are we talking about? Because I think what's what's happening is 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 if you're trying to be a more connected, like you're trying to sell more what pizza, and so how what what is what is the solution to the problem that you have is to get people to come and buy pizza. So does that mean they're, they and they can't go through your restaurant? They can't sit in there, but they can go through. You, um, Aaron, I would say it's really and they can convert. 
it's twofold as, as I'm hearing this. It's sustainable and satisfying. The solutions you come up with it in, in any scalable way have to be sustainable. That's yes. the ultimate success because success in a restaurant is nothing if it can't be maintained and sustained. People yes. are willing to, I've had many operators tell me through this pandemic, all they wanted to do was break even. They didn't want to make a profit. They just right. wanted to be able to pay their expenses. And everybody to a person said, we just want to survive and we just want to maintain. Uh, that to me is so telling because they recognize that this is such a perilous moment for our industry. Yeah. And, and the fear is not that they will, they will get swallowed up in the tsunami of big chain restaurants. They just want to keep doing the thing that they're put here to do. And one of the things I wanted to ask you relative to this is the ritual. We talked a little bit about it. Is there an industry that has more, intrinsic architecture that is built on a foundation of ritual than the hospitality and restaurant business? I can't think of it, but then again, I'm biased. Well, um, you know, my experiences are that there are some brands out there that were, that are very ritualistic in everything that they do. I think if you have a brand with a heart and soul, I mean, just look at look at the ritual and the uh, just look at some of the rituals you see with athletic wear and with with, uh, you know, teams like, you know, we work with the Cincinnati Reds. I mean, they that, you know, just the 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 ritual that they go through from a from a uh, perspective of yearly trying to deliver something truly unique to a fan base that is ever even more so ever evolving. And that spans entertainment, hospitality food, you know, there's a, there, there's a lot of, but I understand what you're getting at, Jenner. I think that, I think that restaurants are unique in the, some of the aspects of ritual. Um, but I don't, I don't think that it's, you guys are, you know, there are brands that are true. There are brands that are agnostic of ritual, but I, I don't, I think that most of our clients have some form of that. Yeah. Listen, I can't thank you enough for being with us today. This has been so fun. The only thing missing was, was food and drink. We are <laughs> disappointed. We can't be around the same table, uh, clinking our glasses yeah. and, you know, sharing a great dog and a beer with you or a, yeah, I didn't know what the rules were. I could have had a bourbon. <laughs> we have no rules. Have no <laughs> I built, I built food and beverage magazine. What is it? What do we have now? 19,000 yeah. readers an hour, right? With no rules, right? We don't, we don't, we don't, we have, We've got those stinking rules. We just right. do this. We just I mean, that's, this. you know, I could talk about this stuff for hours and hours. And, and well, we're going to have you back. Our creative team is is uh, is one that's really, truly unique. It's got a lot of points of view and and very strong creative minds. And I'm just, you know, I, I benefit from that for the most part because, you know, I, I get to meet with some of the most creative minds that I, that I will ever know. So, you know, we're always open to these conversations. I think this is great. Um, okay. you know, hopefully I didn't ramble too much. I know I have a tendency to take over. No, it's <laughs> I'm going to ask you to do one last thing for us though. Look in that fantastic crystal ball of yours. What is the thing that's still in that crystal ball that you were going to read and tell us about that we just didn't get around to that you wanted to make sure we talked about today? What everything's going to, everything's going to be okay. Yeah. 
No, he really meant to say July 1st. Read the book. That's Lord, right. That's Lord right. That's what noble. I should have said. <laughs> July 1st. <laughs> no, I, I, I believe that we as a, I mean, there's no, there's no more, you know, there, the human spirit is one that I believe in more than anything. And I, you know, I, I just, I feel like, you know, our strength is in unity and not division. And, you know, I just, I hope that there isn't so much division out there with that we can't fight our way through this, which I don't believe is true. And I think that, you know, we're going to learn a lot. Um, this is, like I said earlier, this is all live. We're going to see this evolution of countless brands across the, across the globe, restaurant brands, you know, sporting brands. And look at the NCAA, how much they're going to have to change in universities. You know, just all of these massive entities that are being forced to innovate in an incubator. Yep. And we're going to get to watch all that. Now, Granted, there's some, there's definitely, I don't want to say we're get to watch it. I mean, I know we're going through this and there's been a lot of people that have been affected, but I think that this is, this is a, this is a scary time, but yet, you know, coming around to the end of the year, we're going to start seeing some very exciting things happen. And I think we're going to learn a lot about ourselves and we're going to learn a lot about how we interact as consumers. And, you know, we as designers get to in, involve ourselves and engage and get to help write that script and that story. That's, that's what keeps us, you know, keeps us breathing, you know, on this side of the dirt, you know, I just, I love it. And that's, you know, I think that it, crystal ball is tough right now because yeah. this is unprecedented. This, I mean, I don't know if it's completely unprecedented because if you look back through history, but that's a dangerous thing to do. So you know, I think we just need to keep looking forward. Well, I'm my, getting rid of my crystal ball and I'm pulling up my magic eight ball. <laughs> <laughs> that's what I, I'm going to use. Um, I, before we let you go, uh, Aaron, uh, is there any place in the world where they do this pretty well already? Have have they been so forward thinking that this really did wasn't a blip for them? Is there any place that really got it right? Someplace like you know Tokyo with their food vending machines. Is there something somewhere in the world that that like ah, that that's smart? Oh wow. Um... You had to wait to the end to ask me that one. <laughs> Sorry. Um, you know, I think that, you know, I think that there are, there are some very strong brands out there delivering on, on um, supply. And I think that those brands are the ones that are really rising to the top. And, you know, I think that when you look at some of the online supply and people like, you know, I think, particularly I know I keep going back to my clients, but you know, you know, KFC's bucket sales are way up. You know, so I, I think that, you know, you we we won't really know who did it really well until we're out of this thing. Uh, but you do see some people, some companies out there that are that are doing this well. They're they're converting online, they're connecting with their consumers, and they were they were prepped for this type of catastrophe that nobody even knew was going to happen because they already knew that the the lifeblood of their consumer was somebody who wanted to engage with them on multiple channels. And I think that now that everybody's consumer is like that, there's going to be a lot of benchmarks for us to look at to say, okay, these guys are kind of like us, but here's who we are uniquely. I think that that's that's what's that's what we're going to learn from all this. As far as in this moment, if I can think of anybody who's really surviving this, I think I would be, um, I wouldn't be providing the right amount of information because that's just, 
it's such a tough situation to be in that nobody wants to be in. I, it's hard to champion one particular. I mean, well, I'm going to pick on one of your clients because they've been in my mind quite a bit. Uh, yeah. Like so many families, uh, movies have become a part of the uh, cultural oxygen of this moment. And yeah, and I was up in the middle of the night, woken up by some um, sirens, and I put on the TV and I saw the movie The Green Book. And one of the highlights of that movie for me was when the driver of the car got so excited when he was in Kentucky. <laughs> I think he was going on his way to Cincinnati that he was in Kentucky and he got so excited because he was going to get to have Kentucky fried chicken in Kentucky. Yeah. And he said, this is going to be the best Kentucky fried chicken that I've ever had. And so I have to ask the question because you're so close. How much more delicious is the Kentucky fried chicken in Kentucky? And are you a pairing with the Kentucky fried chicken, a bourbon pairing or a champagne pairing? Oh, wow. Well, first of all, I would say that you're not going to get a better piece of fried chicken than in Louisville. Um, mm. So that's the, the and, and shortly out and just a, a stone's throw from there is the uh, birthplace of the recipe. It's at, in Corbin, Kentucky. So that's where you definitely want to go. Um, but as far as from me, from a food perspective, I got to tell you, I'm, I'm, I'm thinking, I'm thinking a nice ice cold Miller Lite with my uh, chicken. A hundred percent. I don't want to overpower those spices. I want something that's going to, you know, balance out my spices, my 11 herbs and spices. You know, Aaron, you're so spot on. My friend, the James Beard award-winning chef, Janos Wilder here in, in Southern Arizona, and I will regularly share a meal together. And we each think that the Miller Lite is actually a perfect pairing uh, for a lot of different <laughs> foods because, because it really just does all the things you want it to do and it lets yeah. the food be the star. But of course, two food people are going to want the food to be the star. So thank you for that candid, wonderful answer. Thanks for being I, with us today. No problem. My pleasure. I, I appreciate it, guys. It was nice to meet you. Nice we're, always, you. we're always willing to come on the show. Good. We keep love up, that. We need you. Keep us in the loop. This has been super fun today, Michael. I learned a lot, didn't you? Yes, it was very interesting. I thought it was going to be a boring when I first talked to him because he was a little bit of a bore, right? He was very, <laughs> he had no personality, what? not handsome, Clearly. not, not handsome to look at, right? Like, I was like, oh God, we are going to lose viewers with this guy. But uh, it we, worked out well. Do people know that you're being facetious or do I have to explain that? I don't know, but does it matter? What are they going to say? Uwe called his guest ugly? I mean, how, who would do that, such a thing? Not right. You. I think I think that if they think I'm not being facetious, then they probably shouldn't watch the show. And right? the information is so good. The what? The information our guests share with us is so Oh, good. they're so yes. And I like the fact that he was honest. You know, he was very yeah. transparent about it. He works with big brands. Um, you know, it would be nice for guys like that to, you know, maybe help out some of these small guys that can't afford their fees and all this stuff to help them. And maybe we'll come together and form some kind of a something and figure out how to do that, you know? One of these days, I, we'll do some kind of like a, a service scholarship in a contest uh, for, but isn't that what Elizabeth Blau did? Well, no, it's more what I do with my book, <laughs> The Food and Beverage Magazine's Guide to Restaurant Success. Available on Barnes & Noble and Amazon and Books A Million, wherever you're going to be. But just run into a Barnes & Noble, pick it up July 1st. Thank yes, you, Mike. That's a, that's
a little bit about what Elizabeth does. Yes, absolutely. All right. So we will see you when? tomorrow. No, oh, Friday. I have your blessings. Friday, we're going to see you, not tomorrow. Tomorrow's oh, Thursday. We get, the, we get tomorrow? Okay. No, Friday. We got some, let's have some fun. Bring on some of your celebrity friends. Okay. Let's make we, some phone calls. But we already booked. We've already got it all lined up. We'll bump people for celebrity friends. Isn't that the way it works? Yeah, but you've got so many celebrity friends. I tell people all the time, listen, Michael knows everybody. You never know who's going to show up, and you never know what's going to come out of their mouth. And, and so far, it's been nobody. Hug your kids and count your blessings. And we love you. Thank you. And good night. <laughs>